into Exodus chapter 5 for the next installment. Uh, our title is Dealing with Disappointment and Seeing that God is Greater. I'm hoping that through what we read in Exodus, the end of Exodus chapter 4 and then into Exodus chapter 5, we'll see two lots of two things. Firstly is we'll see two responses to God's word and then we will see two responses to the circumstances of life. So we'll look for that as we work through this. And uh, the examples we're going to look at is the response of the people of Israel, uh, the response of Pharaoh, and the response of Moses. So those are our three uh, people groups, if we can put it in that way. Let's read, please, from Exodus chapter 4. I know we're going back into a previous chapter, but this is to give what we look at in chapter 5 uh, its context. So Exodus chapter 4 and verse 29. It says, Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. And we'll carry on into chapter 5. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord, that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, Behold, the people of the land are now many, and you make them rest from their burdens. The same day Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, You shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks, as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they made in the past you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore they cry, let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. Let heavier work be laid on the men, that they may labour at it and pay no regard to lying words. Then go down to verse 15. Then the foreman of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh, Why do you treat your servants like this? No straw is given to your servants, yet they say to us, Make bricks, and behold, your servants are beaten, but the fault is in your own people. But he said, You are idle, you are idle. That is why you say, Let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Go now and work. No straw will be given you, but you must still deliver the same number of bricks. The foremen of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble when they said, You shall by no means reduce your number of bricks, your daily task each day. They met Moses and Aaron, who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh. And they said to them, The Lord, look on you and judge, because you have made a stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants, and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. 
Let's first look at the people's initial response because we see two responses uh, of the people. One to the word of God and then to the circumstances of life. But let's first look at their initial response to the word of God. In Exodus 4, that little passage towards the end of it from verse 29 through to 31. Moses and Aaron come to do what God had said Moses would do. You'll go and you'll speak to the people and then you'll go to Pharaoh. So he does what they were told first with Aaron as his mouthpiece. You remember that from before. Moses feeling the sense that he was inadequate and unable to do what God had given him to do. So God in his grace and in his patience says, right, Aaron will speak to you. And it's here at the end of chapter 4. They go and they gather the people or the elders of the people together as they're told. This is a people, remember, that have been here for over 400 years. That's a long time. They'd come down as that extended family, 70, 72 people of the family of Jacob of Israel. And now, as Pharaoh says in chapter 5, they're so numerous. Of course, they're going to have been affected by the circumstances and the society and the culture around them, which the Egyptian culture, being the preeminent one in the world, the known world at that time, was one that was full of a pantheon of gods. They were a part of that. And let's not think for a moment that the people of Israel... Here they're starting to be called a people together, a nation. Let's not think that they were immune to that and that they were all faithfully following the Lord. We've we've had it in earlier chapters that there were some who were faithful. But if you go to Joshua chapter 24, Joshua was telling the generation after this one. He says, put away the gods that your father served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. Just like us. These people were in a culture that assaulted them. And because of that, they had succumbed themselves, these people of Israel, to the worship of the gods of the nation around them, of Egypt. That's important. Because Moses and Aaron come, and Aaron does the speaking, and does the signs that God said he would do to convince this people that God was there. What was their response? We see this. Verse 31. The people believed. On hearing that God was intimately interested in them. God had said before, I have visited my people. And they heard that from Moses and Aaron. God has visited and seen your situation. When they heard that, and when they saw the things that Moses and Aaron could do, by the power of God, it says they believed. That's a big thing, given that this was a group of people who were living in this culture and probably not that far removed in terms of their religious service and outlook on life. Not only that, it says that they humbled themselves. The people believed, and when they heard the Lord had visited the people of Israel and had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads. They humbled themselves. There's two words here in the Hebrew that are used that both mean bowing low. The first one deals with that they bowed their heads, as the English Standard Version says. Other versions say they bowed low. That's the sense of it. They, they were bowed low because they had come to realise that this God of their ancestors that they had heard about and probably had in 
part of their thinking in this mess of a religious culture that dipped into all sorts of gods and situations. This God they'd heard about has come. They believed, they humbled themselves, they bowed low. And the second word is they bowed themselves, which is they worshipped. That's a lovely, wonderful response to the visitation of God. When God's word will come, as it does, and God says that when he sends his word, it will accomplish that for which he sends it. There is a necessity in the hearts of those who are listening to respond. And here's a good response. This is the response that God is looking for. To people who hear the good news that God has visited. Now, let's very quickly take this forward. God has visited those in the slavery of sin in the person of his son. And that's good news. Jesus came out, it tells us at the beginning of Mark, preaching Repent, for the kingdom of, of God is near. Repent and believe the gospel. That's what Jesus came to do. Come with good news. And he himself would be the good news. Because he would be the means by which sinners could be forgiven sin. By the sacrifice of himself. It's good news. That God has visited. And he's shown us the miracles that only God can do. Just as Moses and Aaron did with this people. And it says the people believed. They bowed low. And they worshipped. There's a lovely progression there. Belief in God. The God of all the earth. And all of the universe. Because he is the creator God who has always existed. We come to an understanding of who he is. It then humbles us automatically does it not. Belief will humble us before him because of who he is. And at the same time, it will result in worship. That's what the life of a believer is all about. That's the goal for which God has been working in his grace. I referred to that verse in Romans 15 this morning, that Christ came as a servant. Why? That the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. The final goal of this all is that God would be glorified. And here it is with this group of the elders is representative of the people they believed the word of God they were humbled before the awesome God that they were beginning to understand was there for them and they worshipped little lesson for us thinking all the while of 1 John 4 14 where it says the father sent the son to be the savior of the world what's our response is it a response like the people I believe God you humble me I bow myself before you because I cannot stand before you if it was not for Christ. And I worship you for who you are and what you have done. Then we get this expectation of the people having been told this, them having believed, and they've been told that God is going to release the nation. They go with that expectation and that anticipation and they go um, to see Pharaoh tells us in chapter 5 it was Moses and Aaron but if you go back to chapter 4 chapter 3 actually God says Moses and Aaron uh, will go with the elders so I think the elders were there as well the elders who believed went in with Moses and Aaron though they're not mentioned here you can see that in Exodus 3 verse 18 now this was a big thing the people were expecting Moses and Aaron were expecting God has visited his people 
He says he's going to bring aside. So they go in the boldness, it seems, to meet with Pharaoh. Now, it took some boldness to go before this man. Can't be exactly certain which Pharaoh it was, but I would be persuaded that Amenhotep II, of which there were probably two, because one of them died in the Sea of Reeds. But we're racing ahead. But him, he was a man who was incredibly strong. And part of the Egyptian records of the time say that he had a bow that nobody else could draw back. But for him, nobody else could match his own physical prowess. Now, this was not the Pharaoh that Moses had run away from. This was a descendant. Could well have been one of the, the family of the Pharaoh that Moses had actually grown up with. So he knows this man. He knows something of the physical strength here. And not only that, Amenhotep II had also been going off north to Syria on military campaigns. And it would have been known all around the region that this was one great man. And here you have Moses and Aaron and this group of elders given an audience with him. But they go in with this anticipation that the God of heaven has spoken and has said he will do something wonderful but I wonder if they went with this excited anticipation because Moses and Aaron might have left something out of the message that God had said to Moses back in Exodus 3 verse 19 God says I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. And after that, he will let you go. God had said that to Moses. I wonder whether they'd forgotten about it. We'll see why in a moment. (coughs) So they go. Exodus 5 verse 1. Afterwards, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, this man, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. We're going to consider now the response of Pharaoh to the word of God. Moses and Aaron had come to the people with the word of God. Now they come to Pharaoh with the word of God. What was his response? His response was what you would expect if you were insulted by what was said. Let me try and explain how that little phrase... Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. How that was an an insult to Pharaoh on a number of levels. First, the God of Israel, the Lord, is a direct challenge to Pharaoh's status as a God. He was revered as a God in Egyptian society and culture. Considered by the people to be half man and half God. Secondly, This God of Israel, the Lord, claims that the descendants of Israel are his people. What an insult to this man who has God's status and who owns everything and in particular has all authority over these slaves. That's an insult. Third insult. The God of Israel, the Lord demands the release of these people from their slavery to worship him 
in the wilderness. Pharaoh is insulted. Why? Because Pharaoh's building activity was all focused on temples and other buildings that would promote the very fact that he was God. Pharaoh was considered the high priest of every temple in the land of Egypt. So this Pharaoh was renowned for pouring all of his energies into extending temples and building temples. The more temples he has, the greater the authority he has over the people. There's several levels of insult. Before we get to his response, do you not feel the same insult yourself when the word of God comes to you sometimes? If you're not a believer in God, the Saviour, through the Saviour, Jesus Christ, then the word of God probably comes to you as an insult, but also to believers it can become an insult too, on the same levels. One, why? Because we all think we're in control of our own lives. We're our own little gods. God's word comes and confronts that head on. Secondly, God's word is a direct attack on the notion that the things that we have in this life, we have somehow merited them. We have earned them. They're ours. They're my possessions. God's word comes at that in our arrogance and holding that view. Thirdly, God's word is a direct challenge to us with all the activity of our lives, which, if we're honest, is all done for our glory. We see it in Pharaoh. He represents the sinner, and we're all sinners. The elders of the people of Israel believed the Lord. They humbled themselves and they worshipped, and it would go well for them. What was Pharaoh's response? Verse 2. Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord. And moreover, I will not let Israel go. Moses and Aaron, what are you talking about? Who is the Lord? The Lord there is the, the, the name Yahweh. This particular covenant name of God that he has given to his people for whom he will act for their benefit and for his glory. I don't know this one. Pharaoh denies any knowledge of this God. He, as himself being God, in his own estimation and the estimation of the people, thinks he knows everything there is to know about all of the gods. I don't know this one. You've, you're following lies. You got that in verse 9, didn't you? Don't pay any regard to lying words. This is all lies, Pharaoh says. Do not know the Lord. That's a refusal in the sinful heart to acknowledge the utterly transcendent and eternal God who is there. Turn with me to Romans chapter 1 to see how Paul lands on the same thing as he begins his um, letter which explains in such rich depths what God will do for those who are his he sets the scene at the very beginning with this in verse 18 of Romans chapter 1. 
And he says, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honour him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. That touches Pharaoh and Egypt. But Paul uses it to speak of our situation today. We're all in this the same. I will not let Israel go. I have authority here. Me, Pharaoh, the one who's God. I will not let Israel go. And they're building all these temples which honour who I am. There's no way this is going to happen. Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. You know, working for our own glory is always going to be a burden. And it's going to be a burden for other people as well. I'm not going to develop that too much further. But I think you know what I'm getting at. But when God intervenes and he wants us to realise that he is the one who is sovereign over everything. And he wants us to step into his purposes of grace and mercy and love that flow to us in Christ. Then the outlook is entirely different. What about the people's later response? If you go down to verse 15, I think the section in between from verse 5 um, onwards, Pharaoh is the one who speaks to those who had responsibility over the slaves of his own people, the Egyptians, and said, okay, these people are idle, so that's why they're wanting to go and worship this God. I'm not having anything to do with that. So take away the straw. Now, straw, as it would decay, would give out an an acid which would bind the, the bricks so it gives strength to things don't give them that as part of their uh, their daily work here they're building the bricks don't give them the straw let them go and find the straw themselves they've obviously got too much time in their hands idle hands brutal because the quota for bricks that was required every day remained the same in verse 15 onwards we have the elders coming to Pharaoh the foreman of the people of Israel These are Israelites. They come before Pharaoh to ask, why have you done this? It's, we can't, we can't do this. And the people are getting beat up because of it. They're suffering because of it. They actually have the nerve to say to Pharaoh, the fault is with your own people. There's a point in that, isn't there? As the slave drivers would be working the people and beating them, they're actually weakening them so they can't uh, produce uh, the bricks quota. Pharaoh's response is, you're you're idle. You're idle. That is why you say, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Here's a man to whom God is extending his grace and mercy patiently. And he's pushing back on it. Now, as we go into the following chapters, we're going to have to remember that. Um, Particularly when it says that Pharaoh hardened his heart and the Lord hardened his heart. I'm not going to stray into somebody else's topic here, but the Lord was continually extending grace 
and mercy to Pharaoh. Patiently. Repeatedly. The word of the Lord came repeatedly to Pharaoh. And he resisted and he resisted and he resisted. It's a warning for us. I'll not let you go. I want us to get to the, the, the point of um, the, the people's response to the circumstances that have changed. We notice their response to the word of God. Positive. They believed. They bowed low and they worshipped the Lord. And they expected something. Maybe because their expectations hadn't been set right. Because maybe Moses now had missed out that important feature that it was going to take some time for Pharaoh to be persuaded. There's a point in that. Wrongly interpreting the things that God has said and expecting something immediately. It's not often the way God works. He tells us something and we have to be patient too as he would work it out. We saw Pharaoh's negative response, first negative response to the word of God as it comes. And he seems to have got away with it. And actually brings punishment and suffering on the people. Now we get their response to this again. Verses 20 and 21. It says they came out. Moses and Aaron, it, it says, were waiting for them. That's an interesting one. They didn't go in with them. I, this is conjecture now, but they're standing outside. Or maybe they've heard the foreman, the elders have gone in to see Pharaoh. So they, they go and they're standing waiting to hear what will come. And they come out. What do the elders of the people say when they realize that Pharaoh's not going to change his mind? The Lord, look on you and judge, because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Now, stink is normally related to smell, but here's stink in the sight. So I think that covers a lot of senses. They were just saying, you've made us absolutely abhorrent to Pharaoh. What, were the, what was the people's response to the circumstances of life that had not, gone, not, not happened the way that they had anticipated and expected it would? They were expecting, were they not, as was Moses and Aaron, that they would go in and have this audience with Pharaoh and God would deal with the situation instantly and they would be released. I think that's what their expectation was. Instead, suffering came. The Lord, look on you and judge. They claim to know God better than Moses and Aaron. And that's a dangerous thing. When we would invoke the name of the Lord when we don't actually know him very well at all. Because you have made us stink in sight of Pharaoh and his servants, have put a sword in their hand to kill us. This is not going to go well for us. Moses and Aaron, you're to blame. Here the reaction is one that we all can identify with. Situations all the time don't go as we wish they would. Even the simple little things. And what do we do? There always has to be somebody to blame. And it's not us. We are very quick to look to blame others. The people had wrong expectations. They'd believed bowed low and worshipped. But here, as circumstances didn't turn out as they imagined, they're starting to lose their faith. I know they mention the, the name of the Lord here, but I don't think that's in any sense them knowing who God is. It's actually them saying, I know better than God. And Moses and Aaron, you'll be judged for this. 
You've hoodwinked us. The Lord is not in this. It makes me think a little bit about the parable of the sower that Jesus gave. Do you remember? It says the sower went out with the seed and cast his seed. And some fell in the hard places. Uh, some fell in the rocky places. Some among the weeds and some in the good places. It was in the good places that the crop came up. But the Lord says in Matthew 13, 20 and 21. As for the, that which was sown on rocky ground. This is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation and persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. I want us to think about that. Are we people who are in God's word, believing the promises of God, but whenever things don't work out as we expect them to, according to our time skills and understanding, we're very quick. To blame God or to blame other people. That was one response to God. What was Moses' response? Dealing with disappointment is our title. The people's dealing with disappointment was to blame Moses and Aaron and think they knew and to express that they thought they knew better than God. I think that's where we go very quickly. Well, I certainly do. What was Moses? You're probably sitting there thinking, Moses went a stage further and he went back and blamed God. Actually, I don't think he did at all. Look at verses 22 and 23. After Moses and Aaron hear this, that has come from the foreman and the elders who've gone in, it says, Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, that's the word Adonai. It's not the covenant name of God. O Lord, why have you done evil to the people? You may be looking at your version and it doesn't say evil. It might say trouble or disaster. I'll come back to that in a moment. Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people. And you have not delivered your people at all. Here is the right way to respond to circumstances that go contrary to how we imagine they should. And you're wondering, how do you get that? I've grappled with this for a long time. And I'm convinced it's Moses. At this point in his experience, he has now been convinced of who the Lord is. And the power of God. And he is not coming accusing God of having done wrong. He is asking God why the circumstances have happened. Because he can't understand why. That's a big difference than blaming God for the circumstances. This is a man of faith, I believe, coming to God and saying, I don't understand the circumstances. Why? And as believers, we're going to be in circumstances which we will not understand, and they will be disappointing. It may be suffering, it may be persecution. We have to respond rightly to God. Moses had his expectations that God was going to do something almost immediately, I think, here. And those expectations uh, were dashed. So he goes and he turns to the Lord. The people didn't turn to the Lord, the elders that came out. They claimed to know God's mind and bring down judgment on Moses and Aaron. What does Moses do? He turns to the Lord. There must have been a place where Moses would go. And he sought the face of God. And we know this from later as well. And he says, God, why? Why have you brought this trouble? That's the sense of the word there. Evil, 
trouble, disaster. That which is contrary to the well-being of humanity. Why have you brought this on the people? What does that demonstrate? It demonstrates that he knows that God is sovereign over it all. Because, he says later, Pharaoh has brought this evil on the people. So who's to blame? He's not blaming anyone. He realises that Pharaoh has done this under the sovereign control of God. Only by God's permission has <coughs> Pharaoh acted as he has. On this matter of expectations, believers in the Lord Jesus Christ with all of the promises that God has made to us for this life and for the life to come, we must be careful. We must be careful not to fall into the, um, what's known as the prosperity, health, wealth gospel. That everything is going to be okay. We're going to have everything. Because that is unbiblical. It's not there. Moses and the people possibly had fallen into that trap. They'd heard from God and they expected everything immediately. God has said we will inherit him in eternity. But we have life to live now. With his strength and his power. Now that's not to say. That where the grace of God comes and impacts people's lives and transforms them. That there is not the evidence of the transformation of society. The great reformations that have happened for welfare and education and for people's well-being in the past have almost 100%, I would say, flowed from the lives of people who trusted in a sovereign God. And their lives have made an impact on this world. To overturn slavery, to bring in health care, to bring in welfare. And you see it in nations when the gospel comes in and people's lives are transformed, that there is a betterment that comes. There is a general improvement for people's well being. That is there. But that's so different from claiming the promises and saying, everything's going to be fine, God's going to give me absolutely everything I could ever want. God doesn't say that. In fact, the Lord said in John 16, verse 33, at the end of his discussion with his disciples in the upper room before he would go to the cross, he said, I've said all these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I've overcome the world. He says to his disciples, you, you're going to suffer, but your peace will be in your trust in who I am and what I have achieved. In 2 Timothy 3 verse 12, Paul says there, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. When's the last time you faced persecution? Living a godly life in Christ Jesus will mean that there will be negative, troublesome circumstances that will come. We're not immune to the things of this life. Romans 8 and 17 greatest verses we are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ we quite often stop there but Paul goes on to say provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him the life that the Lord Jesus lived on earth was a life of suffering culminating in his suffering at the cross so the greatest good might come you know that was the most troublesome the most disastrous the most wicked single act in the history of humanity perpetrated there and out of it has flowed the greatest of good in our life circumstances 
when things do not go as we might imagine and expect and anticipate they will, and disappointment comes, what are we to do? We're to be like Moses and to turn to the Lord and say, why? Help me to understand, God, why this is happening. A little bit of Moses' self creeps back in here. He says, why did you even send me? I don't want to dwell on that for too long. But he did the correct thing. He turned to the Lord. And he expressed to God his lack of understanding. Because we have finite minds. We can't see what is beyond. Because God has promised that he is working all things for good. For those who love him. He's promised that. Ultimately, in the end, he's promised that. So what's our response when we don't understand the circumstances? Turn to the Lord. Ask him why. I made the mention that he refers to him as, O Adonai, O Lord. Adonai is God that's sovereign over everything. God, you know everything. Why have you permitted this situation to come? Why am I in the middle of it? Why have you allowed Pharaoh to do this? You've not delivered your people at all. You said you would. The answer comes in the next chapter, and I don't want to go there because that's somebody else's. But he's convinced and reminded of what God had said, that in his time, he will work things for the good of his people and for the good of Moses and for his glory. We have to trust God in this, even when circumstances would come at us that not only disappoint us, but would hurt us and could possibly destroy us. We turn to the Lord. God is not the author and originator of evil. I don't have time to go into this. Isaiah 45, 6 and 7. I am the Lord and there is no other. I form lightness. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. God is saying he's sovereign over every circumstance. Trust him in that. Amos 3 verse 6. Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? Yes, he permits situations that are evil. Troublesome, disastrous, calamity. He's over it all. Not with a vindictiveness at all because he is good. But he permits in a sinful setting the outworking of these things. Ultimately for the good of his people and for his glory. No wonder Peter could say on the day of Pentecost, this Jesus Delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God permitted it, but God was working in it for the greatest good that could ever come to sinners. The salvation of souls. If you want to take, so those of you that take notes or have time afterwards. I'm thankful that in God's word we have repeatedly people who question the Lord in the way Moses did in stark straightforward language tells us we're to do the same take a note of Psalm 44 take a note of Psalm 89 and go and read them you have people there who declare their understanding of who God is and then say why is this happening remember who God is and ask him respectfully why and in the end you'll come round to remember that he is the one who is sovereign. Job in all of his situation lost his family. His well, All of his well-being effectively was gone. How does he respond when his wife says just curse God. 
die. Just give up. Shall we receive good from God? And shall we not receive evil? Same word. Trouble. Disaster. In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. He acknowledged that God was sovereign. He would maintain his trust in a sovereign God who would fulfill his purposes for good. So to finish, Romans 8 and 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. He has a purpose. How do we respond to his word? How will we respond to our circumstances? I hope what we've looked at today will encourage us to believe, to bow down, to worship, and to turn to him and ask him why and leave his presence with an answer that we'll get into next week. Let's pray.